Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Joshua chapter 10, uh, Joshua 10, as we continue our study through Joshua this summer, uh, let's pray and, and open up the word together. Uh, Father, um, we are here today worshiping you as a God who gave us every good gift that we enjoyed this week. Uh, everything that we're, we're thankful for was a gift from your hand. Uh, but we ask this morning that you would help us turn our eyes from the gifts to the giver. We pray that we would make much of you today. We pray that you would be glorified and that you would form us into a people who exist for your glory and your renown in our community. Help us to see you in the scriptures, change our hearts with it, help us to believe these things. We pray that by your spirit, you'd impart these truths to our heart so that we believe and obey. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, God told this young leader Joshua in Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And you kind of know you're in for a difficult time when the Lord tells you you're going to need some courage for this. And, and that's kind of like the doctor saying, this is going to hurt, uh, buckle up. And so at the very beginning of this book, God came to his servant Joshua and told him, you're going to need courage, you're going to be tempted to be discouraged by all that you're about to face, because Joshua would, would certainly be blessed by God and used by God to lead these cantankerous Israelites into the land of promise, but they would also face internal and external threats all along the way. There'd be the external threats of the Canaanites who would wage war against them and not go down without a fight. Um, they would always be the looming internal threats that they would turn from God as Israelites and essentially become like the Canaanites. And so Joshua was going to need a double dose of courage to lead into all of this. So, so Joshua and the people of Israel are facing one battle after another. One king after another is coming at them. And even though they took Jericho, which was a powerful city, and they subdued Gibeon, which was another powerful city, the battles are actually escalating. So this whole thing isn't getting easier. It's kind of like a video game where you beat one level, and then the next level, it's harder, and it's faster, and there's more stuff being thrown at you. They beat one city and one king, and then a bunch of kings unite against them and fight against them. And so at this point in the story, Joshua is probably thinking, okay, well, this is why God said I need courage. I need it for, for this. This is why he warned me not to get discouraged, because it just keeps coming. And Joshua doesn't know when this is going to end. They didn't have spy satellites so they could know that they were about to exhaust all of their enemy's resources. There were no scientific projections where they could say this whole thing is going to end in 18 months. It was a daily fight. Enemies were multiplying. Israel is winning, but they're still along the way losing loved ones in these battles. It's wearying, and news of more enemies uniting and more battles to come would, would wear them out. And so often, the Christian life is like that, where, where one challenge only prepares us for the next bigger challenge. We resist temptation and, and even fight off a sin in our lives, but then a greater temptation comes. We, we raise a child through some tough circumstances and then tougher ones come. We get past a time of despair and then we find that we're going into another season of difficulty and despair and we're tempted to be worn out and to be weary, to be fearful for the future. And now the contemporary church likes to give an answer to all of this by saying, good news, your breakthrough is right around the corner. You're strong enough for this, you're up to the challenge, which in the moment is super nice to hear because who doesn't want to believe that a breakthrough is right around the corner? Who doesn't want to believe that we're stronger than we think we are? In the moment, it's an uplifting message. It gives us some hope. But the problem is that even though breakthroughs do sometimes come, 
life usually stays hard. God answers our prayers and he does so often. He certainly intervenes to change circumstances as we ask him to do so. Uh, But he doesn't guarantee that he's going to answer with the answer we want or in the timing that we want. And while God might answer those prayers and he might provide that breakthrough right around the corner, there's no way of knowing whether that's his will. And then a breakthrough doesn't mean an end to all of the trouble and fighting anyway because more stuff just comes at us. And so what can happen is we can give that promise, well, your breakthrough's right around the corner, and then in the long haul, that can lead to some problems. It can lead to doubt because we think that God guaranteed a breakthrough and it hasn't come. So maybe he's not real. Or it can lead to bitterness. God didn't do what he promised, and and so why am I not getting my answer? I'm exhausted here. It can lead to false guilt, where we were promised that breakthrough and we didn't get it, so we start asking ourselves, well, what's wrong with me? I mean, I hear that Christians are claiming these breakthroughs and getting them all the time. I claimed mine with an awful lot of faith, and I'm still here. I'm still tempted. I'm still in the nightmare job. I'm still having my family problems. I still have health that's failing. So maybe it's me. Maybe it's my lack of faith. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And so that message that's uplifting in the moment that your breakthrough is here can lead to a deep discouragement over the long haul. And the promises at church can start to ring a little bit hollow when we've kind of heard the happy clappy talk before and the promises didn't pan out. I saw one person tweet her commentary on the church this summer and she said, imagine going to a church service this morning and hearing a guy in skinny jeans tell you for the hundredth time that your victory is right around the corner. And so I can't make that promise to you. I can't make the promise that your victory is right around the corner. I can promise I will never wear skinny jeans, but there's not, there is no guarantee that God's going to give us the answer we want when, when we want that. But here's the good news. I don't have a smaller promise than that to give you. There's actually something better than that that's true something that's far more faith-sustaining, far more stabilizing, far more endurance imparting than any kind of promise that your problems are going to go away this week. God told Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, not because the battle was almost over, but because the Lord your God is with you. He didn't say, be strong and courageous, your breakthrough is here. He said, be strong and courageous, I'm here. And if God's greater than everything, that means that he's greater than any answer to prayer anyway. He's greater than any breakthrough. He's greater than any win, any victory, any peace that you might attain somewhere in this life. And knowing him, knowing who he is, knowing what he's like and what he does for people is a far greater thing than than even a change in circumstances that we want. It's far greater than even a breakthrough, far greater than an end to the battles. And so we pick up in Joshua chapter 10, verse 1, and it says, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and his king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors." So remember, at this point, Jerusalem is not yet ruled by Israel. It's a a pagan city. And the king of Jerusalem hears how Joshua and his army are conquering out in the promised land. um, And and he gets nervous. This guy, the king of Jerusalem, his name's Adonai Zedek, which means the Lord of Righteousness, which is a really lofty title for this guy who's kind of a jerk. 
and he, he hears about how the Gibeonites deceived Joshua and had to make peace with Israel and how that subdued the city of the Gibeonites. And, he, and this is a huge deal because if Gibeon falls, if Jericho had fallen, if all these cities are falling one after another, then surely Jerusalem would fall too. So he scrambles together an alliance and they decide together to attack Gibeon because now that Gibeon was an ally of Israel, they, they might not be able to take Israel, but they could take Gibeon and stop this encroachment of Israel into what they think is their land. Verse three, it says, so Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. So now Joshua is in, in the next battle. And this time it's not just one king, it's five kings that he's fighting. Because the farther that the kingdom of God extends its influence, the more it accomplishes, the more opposition that there is. This was true in the life of Jesus, where, where the opposition only grew stronger until he went to the cross. And it's often true in our Christian lives too. That the more ground God takes, the more opposition that there is. So it might be helpful for us to adjust our expectations so that we don't think that we're only one victory away from a problem-free life. Because often our problems spawn variants and they get more complex. You know, conquering one temptation doesn't mean that we'll be living temptation-free. There will be more that come at us. Fixing one relational problem doesn't mean that we're done with the relational problems. Advancing the kingdom of God in one category doesn't mean that all of the advancing and the fighting is done. And so we probably all need to just sort of drop the myth of one more mountain. The idea that I have this one more mountain to climb and then once I do, the climbing will be done. It'll be pretty easy from there on out. So sometimes we'll think like it's the next life event, that if I could just graduate high school, then from there on out, it's gonna be smooth sailing. And then if I could just graduate college, and then if I could just pay for college, and if I could just get married, and if I could just pay for college, and if I could get the career, if I could have a kid, if I could get the kid out of diapers, if I could get the kid past the toddler phase, and past the teenage phase, and then they graduate, and then, then, then once they get married, maybe then, then it'll be smooth sailing, or then I'll get to retirement, then there'll be no more battles to fight, but there's always more in this life. And even with our spiritual struggles, conquering a temptation or an addiction may look like the only battle on the horizon because it's the biggest thing we see. It's the next mountain that we have to climb. But then once it goes down, we find that there are still more mountains. There's still more battles. And Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So notice again that Jesus says there will be trouble, but the promise is him. The promise is not an end to the trouble in this life. That's certainly coming in the new world that we're headed toward. But here, the troubles continue. 
And so often in our situations, and Joshua's here, our solutions can have unintended consequences that create more problems. I mean, remember, Joshua had made this treaty with the Gibeonites, and probably in his mind he thought, okay, this, is, this would be one distant nation we won't have to go to war with. It'll be a little bit more peace, a little bit more power for us in the land. We'll be a little more secure because we make this treaty. But now, because of that treaty, he has to defend the Gibeonites. He has more war against five kings, Yesterday's solutions are today's problems for him. Each win tends to bring more battles. Each season brings new challenges. Each change brings new temptations. There won't be a season of this life without many dangerous toils and snares. But in the story, look at Joshua. I mean, you might be tempted, if, if you're Joshua, you want to dump the Gibeonites at this point. Like, these people are troubled. They came to him. They deceived him last time. He got into this, co- this covenant with them where he said, we're going to be allies because they lied. They pretended they were from a far-off nation. He didn't really owe them anything here. He'd be tempted to walk away, but still he fights. And not only is that an example to us of, of perseverance, but far more than that, Joshua is being like Jesus here. He's devoted to those people that he saved. He's continuing to fight for the people that he saved that didn't deserve it. It cost him a great deal to be devoted to them, but he had made a covenant and he was going to keep his word. And so Joshua's a little S savior here to the Gibeonites. And like Jesus, when he saves, he means it. When he saves, he really saves. He continues to fight for those who are unworthy. He wins the battle on their behalf. He finishes what he starts. He keeps his word In this world of trouble, there's a savior who's fighting away on behalf of those that he saved. So verse eight says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. So notice here that God does guarantee the final victory. There will be an ultimate win. And he tells Joshua that ahead of time, but Joshua's response to that news is not to just put up his feet and let the guaranteed victory come to him. He marches all night in pursuit of that victory. The win that God guaranteed didn't produce in Joshua inaction. It didn't produce laziness. It produced fearlessness. So in response to God's sure promise that the battle will be won, Joshua fights. And and we have to remember, we do have a promise from God. Not that a breakthrough is necessarily right around the corner and that that's guaranteed, but that there is a final victory of Jesus coming over all of his enemies. That's a guaranteed thing. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 say, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is reigning now, and there's coming a day at his return when his reign is complete, and all of his enemies, Satan, sin, unbelief, sickness, sorrow, and death, all get defeated, with the last enemy to be destroyed being death. That's a guarantee, and that's what Jesus is up to right now. He's subduing his enemies, and he will win this battle completely in the end. That is guaranteed. There is coming a day where our sin will be defeated. Evil will be put down. Unbelief will be defeated. It is coming, 
And our response to that news is not just to wait till then, but to act, to fight our sin and temptation, to take on evil, to preach the gospel to defeat unbelief. The battle will be won in the end, and so we fight it. Now, this is a comfort for us when everything looks like it's lost, that Jesus will win. But it's also an encouragement for us to keep going. He's going to win this battle. So God's told us there are going to be continued troubles, there are going to be ongoing difficulties. We can adjust our expectations accordingly, but he has promised ultimate triumph over all of his enemies, so we keep fighting in hope with the Lord with us. Keep going, verse 10, it says, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. I don't actually know how to pronounce any of these words. I'm just going to do it confidently so you think I do. Um, and as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven, but did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. There's a lot here. Um, real quickly, on this book of Jashar that it refers to there, um, this seems like a book that we don't have anymore. It's referred to here. It's also referred to in 2 Samuel. Um, it, it was a book that the biblical authors referred to. And that doesn't mean that we're missing part of the Bible today because you can't find the book of Jashar in the Bible. It just means that the Bible refers to other non-inspired sources at times. It'll refer to things like the book of Enoch. Apocryphal books are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, when Paul preaches in Acts chapter 17, uh, he, he quotes from secular sources and, and other writings. And so the inspired word of God was written by real people who had read other things, and it often will refer to some of those other works. That doesn't mean that everything in those other works is true or good. It doesn't mean that those other works are inspired like the Bible is. But they cited other authors so that people could cross-check facts, so that they could link to history written in other places for further study. And though every word in the Bible is true, was inspired, and was put there by God, God uses means. And so the biblical authors often did things like we saw in the Gospel of Luke, where they would do interviews, they would record oral history, they would reference other works, and they'd even include elements of their personality in the books that they, they created. But God, whole, God superintended the whole process so that the final product was a perfect, God-inspired book written by people to people, every word being breathed from the mouth of the Lord. But obviously more significant than this book of Jashar are two really big miracles that happen here as God fights for his people. There's this huge hailstorm where, where the hailstones fall from the sky and wipe out the enemies. And then secondly, Joshua prays and the sun stands still in the sky to keep the battlefield lit throughout the night so that the Israelites could win the battle. Which raises a question, did this really happen? 
Now, I want you to know, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I have a master's in religion, so I basically went to Hogwarts. Um, I, so I'm, I'm not the guy to speak authoritatively on science, but it seems to me that, that under normal circumstances, if, if the earth stopped spinning for a few hours, that'd pretty much destroy the world. Like if, if the equator is, if you're, someone standing on the equator today is moving at 1,000 miles an hour, those people aren't wearing seatbelts, and all of a sudden you put the brakes on that thing, it seems like they would go flying off. It seems like there'd be a lot of geological consequences. Um, there'd be a lot of problems under normal circumstances that would come if the sun stood still in the sky. And so there have been a number of ways that scholars have handled that. Some have said that this was kind of like just a metaphor for something. Um, some have said that it just seemed like God made the sun stand still. He made it look like that and kind of lit things up a different way. Some have claimed that this was describing a solar eclipse. But honestly, all of those explanations seem like a stretch. I mean, this, this story is told here couched in history. You know, he's, he's not speaking in metaphors here. This isn't a poem. An eclipse does the opposite of what the sun does here. Like there's never been the eclipse where it like lights things up longer. So that doesn't seem to fit. So I think the best explanation here is that this is a miracle of God. And then all of those other normal consequences that would come if you just sort of ground the spinning of the earth to a halt, God held everything in his hand and managed all of those consequences too. I mean, this means that God would have had to supernaturally keep every atom on earth from doing it would normally do if the globe stopped spinning, and God did it. That God was well aware of the geological consequences of doing what he did here, and he held all things together to make this happen anyways. And it's remarkable that he can do this. We notice it, and we might even doubt it because it just seems so spectacular, but he's always holding all things together. And something G.K. Chesterton said is, is we should always endeavor to wonder at the permanent thing, not the mere exception. We should be startled by the sun and not by the eclipse. We should wonder less at the earthquake and wonder more at the earth. That every day, every second, God is holding all things together. And while it's amazing that God would twist every atom to, to allow that sun to stand still in the sky for a day, he's already sustaining everything all the time. And this is a little bit of why it's actually better news that he's with us than the news that your breakthrough around the, is right around the corner would ever be that the God who's with us is the God who holds all things together. Hebrews says he's the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Jesus, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 say, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this God who's with us is the God who holds every atom. So when we're saying that God's with us, we're not just saying that we have nice feelings because it kind of seems like God is with us. We're saying that this God is with us for real. And this God that we worship is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. There's no limit to his power. There's no limit to what he can do. Genesis 18, 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? So not only does God hold all things together, 
he does so effortlessly. He doesn't spend his energy in any way that ever has to be replenished. When he rests, it's never because he's tired. God isn't overwhelmed. He's not grumpy because circumstances aren't going the way he wants them to go. He isn't weak. And so when we're weak, when we're overwhelmed in our trials, it's really good news that this omnipotent God is with us. And then on top of that, when we're confused and we don't understand life, we don't understand these trials, we don't see the end game, we don't know how we ever get out of this, we have a God who's with us, who's not only omnipotent, but he's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. He does see the end. Psalm 139, 1 and 2 say, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. God knows everything, past, present, and future. But, but when we say that, we also mean that God knows things in a very different way than we do. Like we know some things really well. We know other things less well. There are a lot of things that we once knew, but we've kind of forgotten. We can really only focus our, our attention in one place at a time, so we can really know this thing well, but then other things go onto the back burner. But with God, everything is completely visible to him and fully known by him all the time. There's nothing that he's kind of foggy about. And when God knows something, there's no strain to know those things. Everything's completely known by God, actual and potential. He knows everything immediately. He doesn't have to think his way to a conclusion. He already knows all the right conclusions. He knows all things. And that God is with us in his power, guiding our lives, directing our paths. And there's nowhere we'll go to get away from him because he's also omnipresent. Again, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, if I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. God's always everywhere. Now this doesn't mean that there's part of God anywhere we go. This means that all of God is always fully present in all places. The God that we worship is not an absentee landlord to his creation, but he's fully present with his creation all the time. He's not just a God who set natural processes into place, kind of put some batteries in the world, and then just took off to work on some other stuff. He's over all things, through all things, in all things, still very active in the world, guiding the whole world to his intended outcome. This is an idea that we call providence, that, that God preserves and cares for and governs his world so that it fulfills all of his intended purposes. Even the bad things that he hates, that he's not the author of, he weaves in to the tapestry of all, all of history so that at the end of all things, he gets all the glory and his church gets all the good. He's really here. 
Scripture doesn't describe God as someone who created everything and then just said that it all needs to be governed by natural laws and he's going to take off. We have a God who's intimately involved with his creation all the time. And so here you have God making the sun stand still in the sky and then miraculously doing all the other stuff that you would need to do to make the sun stand still in the sky to make sure that not everything disintegrates and none of it's too hard for him. He doesn't break a sweat. What's even stranger about this is that God does all of this for this down and out group of nomads who've been roaming in the woods for 40 years after being freed from slavery. He does all this for Israel. It's just like one nation among all the nations. Most people on the globe hadn't even heard of them. It's not a particularly unique nation outside of God's calling on them. It's not a group, as you read the stories, you don't read it and think, wow, these are exceptionally bright people. You don't think, wow, they, they've got great spirits. They're always so cheerful. Like, you don't look at Israel and say, wow, I can see why God chose them. I mean, you see a group of grumpy, confused, sinful people east of the Mediterranean, and God sets his heart by his grace on little old Israel. Listen to how Moses described it in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. He says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found them in desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So God comes to this obscure people in the howling waste of the wilderness, and out of sheer grace, he sets his affections on them. And he decided that he would keep them and protect them like we protect our eyeballs. Why them? I don't know. I mean, what kind of, why did they get this kind of unique love and affection? I, I don't know. God's ways are past finding out. But as, as we're reading this story, we come to Joshua 10, 14, and he, he says, it's crazy, the Lord fought for Israel. He did. He chose a people to set his love and affection on, a people to care for, even beyond the significant care that he always gives to all of his creation at all times. And then as we keep following the story through the Bible, we get to Romans 16, and the good news there is that everyone who believes in Christ by faith is grafted in to that people. That all the people who didn't believe are described like branches that were cut off from the tree, and all those who do believe are grafted in. That God had this plan where people who believe in Christ from all nations would be grafted into this people that God would set his affections on. And so if we believe in Christ, the kind of love and care that God showed to Israel is the same kind of love and care that God shows to us. The way that God would hold every atom in place so that he could make the sun stand still just for those people is the God who is with us and would do the same thing for us if necessary. He's directing all things, all of history, every atom for the ultimate and final good of his people, the church. And if we've received Christ by faith, we're part of that. We're the recipients of that. So this is way better news than the false promise that your breakthrough is right around the corner. This is the good news that that God is with us has forgiven us, loves us, 
and I don't know how God will answer your prayers. I don't know how much longer the, the struggle will last, and I don't wanna offer a false promise, but the much better promise is that the God who holds all things together and loves us is with us and has promised that he'll work all things together for our ultimate and final good. And if it takes him twisting every atom in the universe all at once to make it happen, no sweat. He can do that without having to take a nap afterwards. God has, has directed all of history toward our redemption. And if we doubt, I mean, we look at the cross. Where God took, at the cross, he took all of the things that give us so much difficulty and he turned them for our greatest good. He took all the things that cause us to fear, all the things that we worried about, we're worried about, and he turned them into good for us. So if we're fearful about corrupt government, look to the cross where God used even the shadiness of corrupt government to ensure that Jesus would go to the cross for our redemption. If our trials are with difficult people, well, God used arrogant and hurtful religious people to lead to that moment when Jesus would purchase our redemption. If we're fearful because of the devil, God took all of the schemes of the devil to lead to the crucifixion of the Son of God, which caused the devil's ultimate defeat. God turned human pride, weak disciples, betrayal, and confusion all toward our good on the cross. God took the worst moment in history, the moment that the Son of God was crucified and died and was buried, and he turned it into the greatest triumph in history. Jesus died looking like he was defeated by the battle, looking like evil had finally won, and then he rose, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and one day he will return and complete the process of putting all of his enemies under his feet. And so our confidence is not that the trials will end soon in this life, but that the God who has that much power and that much love keeps us like the apple of his eye. He's with us with perfect knowledge of our situation, always, everywhere that we go. So let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and our need is to, to see you in your glory with clear vision. We need to see your majesty so that we feel our smallness. We need to gaze on your holiness so that we can feel our sinfulness. We need to see your humble self-offering at the cross in order to know how loved we really are. You've shown your power. You've shown your steadfast love to us while we still hated you. You spoke words of forgiveness to us while we used your name as a curse. You've blessed us with the gift of your spirit, even though we continually look anywhere and everywhere else for our, our blessings. Jesus, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your providence. Thank you that you shaped all of history so that you could go to that cross and show mercy and grace in the face of undeserved evil. Thank you that though you hold every atom in the universe in your hands, you allowed yourself to be mocked and beaten for us. When sinful people reviled you, you were silent like a sheep before its slaughterer. When people cursed you, Instead of bringing judgment on them, you spoke words of forgiveness and blessing in return. 
Thank you for living that life of unmatched goodness toward God and toward your neighbor that we should have lived. And thank you for taking our place under the curse that our sin deserves. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd help us to, to know that you are powerfully present with us and that that is the ultimate good. Thank you that your affection for us is sure and immovable. That your ultimate promise for our future is secure. And help us to be rooted and grounded in your unchanging and eternal character. When we're tempted to despair, when we're tempted to be discouraged, we pray that you'd remind us that you keep us as the apple of your eye. Let that confidence empower us and embolden us for hard times. Let it encourage us for the difficult battles ahead. Let it sustain us through the troubles in this world. And we pray that the fact that you have overcome this world and that you have guaranteed our future will make us people of good cheer and joy in the midst of all of it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.